This is the Lake Ridge Faith and Culture Podcast with our series, God Rules. Women want more rights, more access to abortion, more freedom, not less. Hell is knowing your truth and lacking the courage to live it. I don't care. I have lots of things I disagree with about the Bible. Why are we doing even a series on the Ten Commandments? The law was always meant to communicate God's character and God's truth and the reality of how God made the world. An articulation of our purpose, what it means to be human according to God's intent. Here's what happens when you balk at structure, balk at God's guidelines and boundaries that he's posted. It's not good what takes its place. So when God gives us these instructions, basically it, it, it implies you're a bunch of lying, fornicating, self-worshiping yeah. louts, you know. We shouldn't think about them as arbitrary rules, but we should think about them as God showing us the way to live fulfilling, long-lasting life in the world. We believe the enemy is after your mind and heart, and as shepherds, we're jumping into the fray. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the conversation. And we're back with almost all the usual suspects. We're down one man. Pastor Van is out today with the sniffles. Um, but uh, we've, we're, we're here with Kyle Wisdom. Hello. Good to be here. And Keith Lowry. Hi there. And myself, Ben Lowry. And uh, we're, we're in the middle. We're, we're right at the very beginning, actually, of this new series we're doing. We finished our first principle series. If you haven't checked that out and you're listening to this, maybe this is one of your first uh, forays into the Faith and Culture podcast, go back and check out the First Principles series. It's a great series looking at how the first few chapters of the book of Genesis sort of provide the framework for all of reality. We're looking now at the Ten Commandments at how God's law, as revealed on Mount Sinai, um, also provide a grid work for what it looks like for man to live a happy, fruitful, productive uh, life. A meaningful life, um, a wonderful life, you Aww. could say. It's a wonderful life. It, and, it, and it is, but only if you don't kill your neighbors. Um, <laughs> it, it turns out. Yeah, George Bailey didn't learn that lesson, but <laughs> but he might have. <clears throat> anyway, so today, you know, last week, or, or, or in the first podcast, we, we tackled the uh, first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. This week we're going to look at, you should make no graven images of things in heaven or on earth and bow down to them. But what I'd like to do is get the full picture. So, Kyle, I think you've got this pulled up. Would you mind reading the first two commandments from Exodus 20? Yes, so I'm going to start just right at that first verse of chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your for I the Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so um, thanks, Kyle. This is these first two commandments. I think are interrelated. I mean, they're all we're going to find as we move through this that everything that follows these first two commandments sort of hinges on a, a proper understanding of them. 
Um, and one of the coolest things I think about reading the Ten Commandments, studying the Ten Commandments, and thinking through how they apply today is just how wildly well they do apply today. Yeah, you don't outgrow the Ten Commandments. You just, yeah, you just don't outgrow the Ten Commandments. And the societies that do inevitably um, grow sour fruit in precisely these ten ways, right? So the the societies that think that they've outgrown these Ten Commandments um, will will sort of um, become iniquitous in these exact uh, expressions or forms. So last week, let's review a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about where we landed on the first um, the first commandment: "You shall have no other gods before me." Talk through that a little bit. Where where did we go with that conversation? Well, ultimately, I think we landed on probably the greatest idol. Uh, first of all, that humans are prone to do this. We're prone to worship things other than God. It seems to be a peculiar skill of ours. And the idol we seem to create the most often and the most effortlessly is the idol of self, mm. that we worship ourselves as sort of the ultimate power of the universe, and that leads us into all sorts of other sins. But that sort of sits at the root of a lot of that. Right. Um, so I, I think one of the other interesting points to, to make about the first commandment is that um, God prefaces his entire law, this these stipulations or requirements for, for human behavior, <clears throat> really for human loves uh, and then the applications of those loves uh, on his own deliverance of these people. And so um, I was, you know, I was reading through Calvin's um, uh, comments on the Ten Commandments, and he makes an inter- interesting point. This is kind of like a marriage covenant that we have here. God is acting like a husband and saying, you are mine. Hmm. I've delivered you. You are a people of my possession, which obviously already we've we've sort of drifted into the very offensive um, like if we're, if this is a metaphor we, for marriage, is this a good metaphor for do we marriage? We normally avoid the offensive when we talk about <laughs> no, things. Anymore. No, I guess not. I guess <laughs> not. Um, but anyway, so God is saying, "This is how I'm going. This is what I'm going to do for you. This is what I expect you. How I expect you to also lean into the covenant. If I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people, then this is how this is going to look. Right? Yeah. Um, let's draw these lines clearly. <clears throat> and so here in here in the second commandment. Uh, God puts um, some specific terms on what, in his mind, it looks like when we start having other gods mm. besides him. Last week it was the self. We decided that we believe it's not God that gives freedom. It isn't God that has ultimate authority to order our lives, <clears throat> but it's actually ourselves and um, self-expression that is the uh, true freedom being able to sort of live into and act out whatever I feel like doing um, and having the authority to self-actualize in that way, that's what our culture worships and loves most, right? That's modern man. Well, and I, I love that image you've used of the marriage covenant because he moves so effortlessly from if the first commandment is you'll shove another gods and that is sort of the, hey, I am your only spouse. You don't, I don't get a rival for your affections. Your love belongs to me. Right. Uh, commandment two is the wedding ring. It's, okay, if you're going to be my spouse, there are also specific items <laughs> that you should not have on your person because th- those fingers, that, that image I've given you is the only one you should have. You know, um, I think that 
one of the messages if in the framing of the Ten Commandments, at least in part, is that if God pre- you know, precedes it by saying the context here is freedom, mm-hmm. the, I brought you out of slavery, mm-hmm. um, then at some level the suggestion that he's making is that um, freedom can only abide and exist in the context of the maintenance of virtue. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That, that you really can't... Um, Hey, slow down with that yeah. wisdom, okay? It's um, early. I'm a millennial. Can you say that again for me? <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that, and, and you know, that, interestingly enough, I mean, this was, you know, we, even in this country, we read, you know, in our founding documents about the pursuit of happiness. And there's a very different understanding we maintain about that in the 21st century uh, than was maintained at the time it was written, because they really had this sort of, uh, ancient understanding that virtue is synonymous with happiness, that mm. you can't really find happiness in a life of dissipation and self-indulgence, that however appealing that might seem on the surface, it leads to self-destruction. And so happiness, in their view, when they talked about the pursuit of happiness, they meant the freedom to pursue and live out virtuous pursuits because these things were synonymous in their mind. Uh, and I think, interestingly enough, I, you can see that here in the in the Ten Commandments that that God, in laying this out, isn't sort of saying, "I'm here to preclude all the fun having. I brought you into freedom, and now I'm going to preclude all the fun having." That's really not what He's saying. He's saying, "Here's the boundary conditions for capitalizing on that freedom, for taking advantage of that freedom, for living fully in that freedom, is to live within." the purposes for which he made us. Yeah, I've always talked to students about it this way, and even my own kids. Um, You don't want, you know, if we're going to define freedom as the world does, it's the absence of any external inhibitor to me doing whatever it is I want. You don't want that kind of freedom in Mm -hmm. any other context of life. Like, let's just talk about the freeway, for instance. (laughs) Think about 635 without lane markers. Like, that would be a disaster. 635 is already a disaster, right? (laughs) Yeah. But, like, you take away the lane markers and give people true freedom, if that's what true freedom is, then everyone dies. Like, everyone dies who gets on 635. So, So I think your point is great. There is, if you want true freedom, then you got to live within the the markers that God has set out for us, right? Yeah. Well, and it's... The logic from the first to the second commandment is very much our our ideas of consequences. Mm. So he begins with, you shall have no other gods uh, before me. And then the second commandment is, and I know for a fact, if you have them, you will eventually bring them forth. Mm. That the, the gods that you allow to live within your heart and in your mind internally will manifest themselves externally. Well, this is this is probably more of a philosophical point, and it may not be interesting to anybody else, but... Um, but I think I think Kyle, you're 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 hitting on something here. God precedes us. He transcends us. He's outside of us. He acts upon us. He's the you know Aristotle would have um, Christians who read Aristotle came to the conclusion that God was the first mover, the unmoved mover, the beginning of all things. Right, the only eternal one. He's all of these things. He is true reality, and we only exist to the extent that God deigns to share existence with us, right? But our idols proceed from us. They depend on us. 
They come out of our heart. We become the things that give them existence. There's that's we don't want when we when we choose idols, we're saying I don't want God to be before me, above me, behind me, beneath me. I want God to be something that I can manipulate, hmm. that I can make after my own image, the things that I love, right? Yeah, so I, I'll say something maybe that'll introduce a little discomfort into this conversation. Um, maybe, oh. maybe not. Um, <clears throat> so I think you're spot on. It was going to be a good day. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're spot on with that. But I also think um, in modern Christian evangelical context, we, we have imbibed a little bit in the view that uh, that God revolves around us rather than us revolving around him. Mm. Um, you know, we, I mean, legitimately, we read John 3.16 and say, says, he so loved the world that he gave his own son, but we presume that that means that he's, that's the only thing he's about. Uh, I love, you know, I may have mentioned this on this podcast before. I don't know. I love the, the scene in um, uh, the the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where uh, the the girls and Aslan go to the White Witch's castle in the midst of the battle, and he breathes on all the statues there and brings them back to life. And these these statues, I, I love what Lewis does there because they don't just bask in their aliveness; they take up arms and go to war. They're they're brought back to life for a purpose, and it's a purpose really of taking great risk at potentially great mm. personal cost for the cause of Aslan, not for themselves. And I think, you know, to this point about in the first commandment, and, mm. you know, we, we have a tendency to make an idol of ourselves, I think we do that a little bit with, even with God in Christian circles sometimes where we think, you know, uh, God is is my concierge, my cons, my cosmic concierge. You know, and he's sort of here to sort of meet all my needs. And rather than, uh, and, and maybe this partially explains even things like the Jordan Peterson phenomenon, who has this big appeal because what he's saying is at the center of the universe in your calling is self sacrifice. Right. You're you're here not just to be nice, but to be true at whatever personal cost that involves. And I think that less domesticated view of what we're here for and that it's not that, you know, we're just stepping up to, and God's the giant bartender to give us, you know, whatever libations we, we'd like in the moment, but really we're, we're called to something mm -hmm. sacrificial. We're enlisting in his cause. Jesus is our captain. He's not our butler, hmm. you know, and, and, and we're called to something not about uh, self-fulfillment per se, except that we're made for this. Yeah. Uh, we're called to self-sacrifice uh, and to live out and speak the truth in the midst of a world in which that will be very costly mm -hmm. and will require courage. And I think, um, I think we need to be careful about, you know, it's easy to sort of look out there and say, you know, it's all about self-indulgence, but I think there's a there's a smattering of that in certain modern well, Christian thinking. We're going to have to hold the, the um, or shine the spotlight of conviction in every direction. I think, and, and and the Ten Commandments makes us do that. You know, we made the point in the first episode that um, the Ten, Ten Commandments are kind of embarrassing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, because they they tell us something about ourselves, about the way that we are, and the things that we want apart from God. And so you're right to make this an uncomfortable conversation. Um, 
you know, we, I, I do believe that Christians and, and podcasts certainly can be this way. And it's not really Christians. It's more of probably of a religious thing, but yeah. Christians are certainly no exception. We, we can take the things that we don't like and sort of look out at the world and say, I wish you guys would be better about this. Um, and, and forget to consider maybe where our, our own hearts are at. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would like, so getting, getting all the way back to the first and second commandment specifically, there's something about the first and second commandment we should, we should acknowledge. And it's that God presumes that we are worshiping creatures, mm-hmm. that we are creatures who worship. So there's this like modern illusion. Um, and it's this thing called an atheist. Um, Atheists just reject a particular God. They do not, they are not people who do not worship. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Atheists are worshiping creatures like everything else. They've just rejected a particular God. Um, And so I I just want to make that point. Everyone worships something. The question is, whom or what are you worshiping? Well, and I think culturally, our, our, our own culture is having to admit that fact because of the rise in the, the spiritual nuns, not like, you know, habits and Ave Marias and all that, but um, the idea of those who do to, do not affiliate spiritually but are not necessarily atheist. The, uh, the trend is towards more spirituality, not less, but also more uh, untethered, unconnected spirituality. Um, I, I, you know, Van's not here, and so I feel like in his honor, I do have to bring up Romans chapter 1 at this point. It's true. And yeah. it's— which is the the proof text for what you're speaking of. That, this one's for you, Van. Yeah. yeah, maybe we should have a moment of silence <laughs> yeah. before we do it. Or a moment of cough, maybe it's just... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> moment of sniffles. Um, yeah. yeah, it's the idea that all of us are going to be worshiping something. The question is, we get to choose what we're worshiping. And I think to the point about the illusion of freedom that idols provide, especially, I think, a graven image, something we can see and touch and sort of manipulate, is we think that by choosing our God and choosing our idol, we will get the freedom to choose. But really all it does is choose our slave master. Right. We choose the thing that will ultimately rule over us. Yeah. Um, and we often choose very poorly. We, and Well, and let's, if we keep within the metaphor, we choose a spouse. Mm. Um, we, we choose to wed ourselves to something. And God is saying, there's, there's only one worthy of your love, yeah. and it's me. Um, I, I, I'd, like us to, I'd like us to look at this, um, from, from this from this angle so that we can build, I think, to where we need to go on the second commandment in particular. But when we read the second commandment, I think that the questions start coming pretty fast. There's some, there's some mm. big questions that come pretty fast. Questions that Christians ask, like, okay, so is it always wrong to make a statue? Or a carving? Is it, um, what in the world does it mean that God's going to visit my sins on my mm. great-great-grandkids? Like, I thought God didn't act that way. It does, is that a just thing for God to do? Um, so so let's, let's play with some of this, and then ultimately I think we'll be able to build to what, the last question, and I think the biggest question we need to answer is, what is our idol? What are our idols today? Mm. As a culture, I mean, in the West, we could pat ourselves on the back and say we've sort of dispelled the illusion of idols, right? Of carrying little carved images in our pockets, but you know, not so fast, George Banks, right? Like we may be much more idol worshiping than we think. But I want to build to that. So, mm-hmm. so let's start with what does it mean not to make graven images? Because I've got some figurines 
on the shelf at home that I'm worried about. So you've sort of set up an army of questions, and I'm going to try to tag it from the right flank first. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll come in. So I think we have a very interesting uh, case study in the Torah, in mm-hmm. the first five books, of proof that perhaps this is not just do not set up an, a graven image. And specifically, do not set up a graven image and um, look to it. So the, uh, in Numbers 21, uh, Moses actually sets up a graven image. He's instructed by God. The uh, people of Israel have rebelled against God. They have turned away from his commands. They're grumbling against his leaders. And so God says, I'm going to strike you with serpents. He sends a bunch of snakes into the camp, and they're biting people, and people are dying in droves. It's awful. It's horrible. And he tells Moses a very particular thing. He says, Moses, I want you to make a graven image. I w- <laughs> okay, Moses, Moses, that thing I said on Sinai, um, pause. And Moses okay. is going, okay, now I'm confused. But he says, make the image, interestingly enough, of a snake. And set it on a, a, a bronze snake, set it on a pole in the center of the camp. And all those who are bitten, if they will but look. So we even have the idea of looking at a graven image. If they will but look at the graven image, they will be healed. Mm-hmm. And it's this powerful moment of, wait a minute, we've created a graven image, we're looking to it for some sort of deliverance, and yet this is not breaking the second commandment, because God's instructing. I think the point being, the graven image we have in Numbers 21 is an image they look through, rather than an image they look to. Yeah, I think there's a good difference there. The tabernacle was filled with images. Of things in heaven and on earth. Right. Um, And so, I, I mean, the only thing I can get from that is that this is really talking about uh, creating images for the purpose of worshiping. Um, that it's not against, in general, artistic expression. I mean, God actually miraculously gifted the Israelites with artistic skills to mm. do the work yeah. of the tabernacle. Um, and so, you know, I think this is really saying... Um, don't make things that you intend to bow down and worship. And I think it's also saying <clears throat> be on your guard because you have a tendency to bow down and worship the things you have made. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's at least those two things, but I don't think it's a it's a blanket prohibition on carving something that well, represents, you know, something that exists in the spiritual or real world. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're both Right. I think you're both correct on this. Um, and I think it's helpful for a lot of Christians, maybe even some who listen uh, to these conversations, to know that God himself uh, commanded the, um, the making of artistic sculptures that became the accoutrements of his worship. Right. And so they, these were things that helped point people to the truth about who he is and what only he provides. And we live within a physical material world and we can't we we can't divest ourselves of all physical material things and pretend to worship only a spiritual god. That's not what God asked us to do. And and I think the um greatest picture of this is actually in the person of Jesus Christ himself, right? who becomes part of creation. God himself becomes part of his creation, and so Christians have a long-standing tradition of making images of Jesus. From the very, very beginning, they were making images of Jesus. He was usually, the very first images were in the catacombs, and Jesus was a shepherd carrying a sheep over its shoulders. Mm. 
that when the sheep was the church and Jesus was the shepherd, right? Um, that's one of the very first images that the Christians had of Jesus. They didn't worship the image. They were worshiping Jesus. Um, and but they never, by the way, they never made images of the Father. Yeah. No one ever in Christian, and that was a big deal, you don't paint the Father. Yeah. But you can paint the Son, and you can paint a dove for the Spirit, because right. that's how he manifests himself. Or you can right? sort of allude to the Father with a hand coming down out of heaven to sort of go, he's there, but we're not painting him. Right. Well, and to your point, Christian history is a long a, a long history of being very careful about the way we use images. You know, we have the the iconoclasm controversy mm-hmm. in the early church period where they're asking questions of what is the proper role of using these images within worship of God? And it seems that at the core of a lot of those discussions is really um, even in the in the practice of using icons today in many in many branches of the church, the question becomes, is this image saying something true about God or something false? Mm-hmm. If the image is pointing towards God in a way that is true or in a way that is magnifying of him, then the image is useful. But if that image is just, just, just is distracting from or is saying something false, um, that's when an image begins to become something more like the graven image of yeah. the second commandment. So last last comment on on this particular question where the second where the second commandment is concerned. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the icono, iconoclasm controversy. Um, it was, a lot of people don't know this, but um, it was really between Christians. One group was saying, we can have images and sculptures and paintings in our worship context. And the other group was saying, no, all such things are forbidden by the second commandment, Right. That thinking, the no, you can't have any images thinking, was actually the Muslim influence. Hmm. It was the Muslim influence on Christendom saying, you can't have any images, and Christians were like, wait a second, I think they're right. So it was the Muslims who actually injected this perspective that you can't have any images in your worship, and the Christians were going, we've had images since we were meeting in caves, dude, (laughs) you know? Anyway... We got to get our history right, but I'm pretty sure the prohibition against images in Christian worship went out about the time PowerPoint was invented. I'm I'm not sure, but it <laughs> yeah. seems to have gone out. Yeah, least. yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so um, so let's talk a little bit about the the nature of idols. Okay, we're we're obviously so I I, I had a professor, God rest his soul, he died this year. Um, his name was Doctor Larry Waters, and he was a missionary. And uh, he was a missionary in the Philippines, I believe, and if I'm if memory serves me. And um, there's actual idol worship, and so I want to draw a distinction between mm. sort of how we spiritualize the idol worship and what's actually going on in places, godless places, um, where, where where idol worship is concerned. Uh, I do think we need to spiritualize this. And I, and I don't mean spiritualize in a bad way. I mean there is a spiritual application to the second commandment we're going to get to because we're guilty of breaking the second commandment in this way in our society. However, Dr. Larry Waters, he tells this interesting story about how when he was a missionary to the Philippines, there was a particular idol in the, in the community where he was serving that everyone loved. Even the Christians kind of kept this idol in their house because he was the god who ruled this area, and they were afraid of offending him in any way. Hmm. So he was invited on television, on a news thing. This was back in the 80s, I think. He's invited on television as this sort of Western American newcomer to the town and missionary. Hey, come tell us about yourself and what you're here for and what's going on. And he brings an idol with him. 
one of these idols, one of these famous, everyone's afraid to touch and don't upset this God idol. He brings that idol with him. But he didn't just bring that idol on the television program. He also brought a hammer with him. Oh, boy. And on television, on the news, live, he took a hammer to the idol and shattered it and challenged that God um, to, to, to do to something. Fight. Come at me, bro. You <laughs> wow. know, yeah. like, like Jesus, Jesus is king. And he's got authority in heaven over all things. And if you, if this God, so-called, exists, then he's under Jesus' authority. So come at me, bro. That's basically what he did. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> and it was, it was fear-shattering. People in the Christian community had to square with, hey, we can divest ourselves of this idol because God really is sufficient. Jesus really is sufficient. He really does have authority over all things. Um, <clears throat> and so anyway, I, I tell that story only because in some parts of the world, idol worship is actually going on still today. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> um, and, and I think it's helpful for us to, to, to remember that because we could look at this as an old-fashioned thing. But obviously, in our world today, um, most of, of us aren't still worshiping carved images of animals or turtles or, you know. I don't, I don't ever bow down to a turtle. That's so, just right. well. I mean, I think we're increasingly pagan. I mean, I had people. Right. I've had mm. people work for me that worship crystals. Right. You oh, know? Yeah. So oh, I mean, yeah. that's a thing. Um, but did they carve them? Yeah. No, I'm just. Kidding. Uh, they, they, po- they polished and... them. I'm yeah. pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. um, so um, <clears throat> you know, there was a there's an ancient story um, uh, in Alexandria, and this is told in um, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, there's a great story about an event that took place at the Temple of Serapis, along the lines of the story you just told, Ben, where the goddess in the temple, the, the idol in the temple, had hands outstretched to either side and reached all the way across the temple. And the, and the story that people believed about that idol was that if anything happened to the idol, the world would immediately go back to a state of chaos and disintegrate. And, um, and there was... Uh, due to largely a Christian influence, growing cultural Christian influence, there was an increasing sort of restiveness and dissatisfaction with the state of things with the idol and the domination of the culture by idolatrous interests. And so at one point, a young man in the temple climbed up with a hatchet onto the face of the idol uh, Serapis and whacked off a big chunk of the cheek. And the interesting thing was everyone sort of expected, is the world going to go back yeah. to, is where we yeah. all going to disintegrate? No one, <gasps> no one quite yeah. knew for sure what was going to happen. And, uh, and of course, you know, the world didn't go back to chaos, but they eventually pushed that idol down and in probably both in both a true historical way. And as a metaphor, even sort of metaphor alert, uh, rats poured out of the broken idol's body uh, in the temple. They had been eating and gnawing at the interior of the of the idol, and when the, they tore it down, all these rats came pouring out. And, um, but... The, <laughs> Chaos. Yeah, yeah. but... <laughs> yeah, but the I guess the point is that there's this... Um, there's this need to um, dispel... Right. Yeah. Dispel the illusion. Yeah. Christians have to be. Doing uh, and that. it's not even that it's entirely an illusion. I mean, there's something, there can be something behind an idol. There can be a, a demonic influence behind an idol. 
But as you said, everything's under the authority of That's Jesus. Right. He's That's king. Right. Yeah. You know. Well, and there's an, there may be an interesting version of both these stories um, at play in the work today in the form of Elon Musk buying Twitter. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, he's um, kind of whacking the cheek, yeah, cheek off the Yeah, he's cutting the cheek right? and all the rats are going, <laughs> going yeah. berserk. No, yeah. I'm kidding. Well, you've, done, you've gone to great pains, I think, Keith, in this podcast to remind us of the spiritual reality of many of these conflicts. Yeah. And so I think it's important for us to remember that, you know, in uh, the letters to the Corinthians, Paul sort of walks this interesting fine line between saying the idols are nothing, so you can eat the meat in the marketplace without breaching your conscience, but also um, don't go into the temples of these gods and partake of their food only to then go and take the Lord's Supper because you're uh, mish- you're mishmashing together the, the body of Christ with the body of demons. Right. And so there, yeah. is, there is a sense in which we do need to see idols as simply something empty. Mm-hmm. Something to be seen as harmless, but also to your point, there are there are spiritual forces of darkness that are going to attempt to use every possible physical object we will erect in the name of something we value yeah. for the purpose of corrupting us toward a worship that we shouldn't have. And so I think for us, we need to be very aware, what are we making as something to value and then how could a spiritual force hijack that thing's purpose for the sake of making us worship it? Well, well, yeah. And so, I mean, and so let's let's talk about this. Um, God says, don't make a graven image, but he also gives us a reason why. Hmm. Okay? He says, because the Lord your God is a jealous God. You're, you're mine, right? And so I don't want you, like... With Don't put on loyalties. the other team's jersey. Yeah, divided yeah. loyalty. Yeah, like it's it's like it's like showing up at school and your girlfriend's got on the quarterback's jersey and you're going, wait a second, you know, um, that that's that's inappropriate. You're supposed to wear my yeah. jersey, even if I don't get in the game. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, for the for the table tennis team. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're supposed to wear my my chess club shirt. You know what's going on? Um, yeah. So God says, I am a jealous God. And then he says, visiting the sins of the fathers on the third and the fourth generation, but showing mercy to those who love me, showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and obey my commandments, keep my commandments. Okay, so let's let's talk about both sides of this equation. If we're going to worship something and we still haven't established exactly what it is that we're worshiping as an idol in place of God today, <clears throat> and we should do that before the end of this you conversation. You said we had time. We're building We're to building, it. right. <clears throat> but let's talk just a little bit about what gives God the right hmm. to visit, you know, my great-great-grandfather's sins upon me. Let's Let's put a little bit of flesh on those bones this morning. Well, I think this is something... Um, in a culture where we view ourselves as completely autonomous in every way, uh, the notion that anyone else has a claim to do with us as they will is um, is unappealing. Mm-hmm. Let's just put it that way. And I think that the whole message of Scripture is that God owns everything. I mean, in this in this particular passage, he says, look, I, I brought you out of Egypt and brought you into freedom. In other passages... It says, I created all things, ergo, I have this authority. So I think, I think there's a fundamental assumption throughout cr- Scripture that God can be just to, in doing almost anything he wants with us. 
and he is not bound by the same um, uh, moral uh, confinement that we are as creatures. Right. Uh, I mean, he's he he is love, and he's just, and he's right. All these things, but how how that manifests itself can be different for him than it can be for us because of his place as creator versus our place as right. creature. I think that's the starting point. And yeah. it's the starting point that God begins with. Yeah. I'm God and You're not. nobody else is, right? Yeah. Um, right? But but I think there's even more to this question if we look a little deeper because there's the, in the prophets, the Israelites had sort of taken to using an expression, you know, our fathers ate sour grapes and now our children's teeth are set on, aid, uh, set on edge. In other words... Our fathers did something that was wrong, and now we're the ones who experience the sourness of that. And God said, stop saying that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like that expression, because I don't punish the sons for mm. their father's sins. So, so, so here's an interesting thing. We do see God um, bring about judgments on later generations for the sins of the fathers. But in almost every case, that generation who receives the judgment was given a chance to turn. Like, I don't know of, of an example where that wasn't the case. But what we do see is that the children tend to perpetuate the false worship of their fathers. Yeah. Children will take on the worship habit of their, fa- of their fathers. Um, on The converse, though, is when we give God our love— and fidelity, keep his commandments. There are blessings that far exceed God's wrath towards sinners. The, the mercies of God are an ocean to the puddle that is his, his wrath towards sin. Three and four generations, like, that's what I'll, you know, think about your great-great-grandkids <laughs> before yep. you do that, right? That's what God's saying. You... You may think that you're getting away with it, but your great-great-grandkids will probably pay the price for whatever it is you're dabbling in right now. That's what God's saying. It's a warning. But he's also saying, love me, and for, th- for a thousand generations, your people will experience the blessings of my mercy. Yeah. Right? Well, Ezekiel 18 makes pretty clear that both at the, at the logistical level of humans but also the moral level of God— he is visit, he is saying the the one who sins is the one who gets punished and to, but to your point these things have ripple effects through generations um, a really great example of this is the um, the generation of uh, in the book of Joshua so you get the first generation that sort of goes into the land and begins to start uh, fighting to deliver the promised land into the hands of the Israelites the way God called them to but then you get this generational shift about halfway through the book and all of a sudden, the next generation conquers less. Mm. They stop doing the things that God called the previous generation to. And what you realize is there was no communication of what God expected of them to that next generation. And so you can sort of quibble about the details of, well, whose fault is that? Is it the kids for disobeying? Is it the parents for not communicating? And the answer is probably yes. Mm-hmm. Both the disobedience of the son, as you mentioned, that's carried on is both their own choice, but also a ripple effect of the choice of their parents. And so we have to be very aware that there's no such thing as uh, fully private sin. There's no such thing as it's just my own problem. 
what we're doing is affecting the lives of other people in ways we may never be able to know or imagine until eternity arrives. Um, and that should give us sober, sober minds for looking at the choices we're making yeah. and the things that we're putting before our children as being worthy of our attention, our value, and our worship. Yeah, there's a um, there's an expression, I think it's true, and it speaks to the generational... Uh, Oh, what 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 would what would momentum that that develops over time as we as we choose to allow something into our lives that God doesn't want in our lives and and this is the expression it's what what one generation tolerates the next generation accepts the generation of that embraces and so there's this move from tolerance to acceptance to em, to embracing something and if you look at our culture today. We began probably 60, 70, 80 years ago with this ideal, this virtue of tolerance in our culture toward other ways of thinking or other lifestyles. we got to be tolerant, right? I mean, in, even in the era that I grew up in, um, the 80s and 90s, tolerance was a big word, like just be tolerant. Well, then, then it was acceptance. We need to be accepting. And I would, I would say these were the Obama years, right? Like <laughs> everyone was talking about acceptance. Yeah, that early 2000s. Yeah, 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 they need to be accepted for who they are. But now it's like a demand that you embrace me, a demand that you take part in my delusion, um, right? Like it's, so it, we have moved from tolerance to acceptance to full-on embrace of things that God says we ought not to do. Um, and it begins, I think, Kyle, and I'm going to go back to this time and time again, but I think it begins with our sacred institutions. Um, and, and I'm going to say there are two that God highlights as purely sacred, and it's the family and the church, his people, his assembly, and the family that he created. And I think it's within those two contexts that we develop value systems. And I, 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 so I did my research for my doctorate in the realm of fathers and how they impact their kids' spirituality. And so anytime you see something in Scripture where God says, how you worship is going to impact generations of, of your descendants, I have to kind of pay attention, right? Like, <laughs> that's, that's the sort of something I'm into. So um, here's what I've learned. A father can give and bestow an entire value system on his kids and grandkids with just his eyes, with just the things he gazes at. He can teach his kids that his cell phone is the most important thing in his life. If, when they walk into a room, he has no time for them, but has his cell phone in front of him all the time. Mm. A father can teach his kids that movies or video games are the things that have ultimate value if he, mm. if he puts his eyes on those things rather than on his wife or on his kids, right? Like So a father can teach a value system to his kids with just his eyes. In the same way, a father who who puts his eyes on the things of God, sets his mind and heart on God's things, on God's word, on prayer, whatever the case may be, he can teach his kids that those things have ultimate value. A father will bestow that value system on his uh, progeny. Um, and, and, I, and I think that this is important because what we're dealing with in the second commandment are the gods or the values that we see that we can put our eyes on, right? What, what we focus our eyes and attention on becomes, can become an idol in our lives in peculiar ways. Um, it, they become distinctly idols in our lives, the things that we give our eyes and attentions to. So let's keep building on this, okay? 
our our answer to the second commandment and our our conversation about the first commandment they've got to overlap because these are these two commandments are interrelated and so the first commandment we said God is God alone. He alone grants freedom. He alone has ultimate authority to guide, govern, and direct our lives. And so moving into the second commandment, so like first commandment, don't have a God beside him. Second commandment, don't look specifically to other things and then give them their, your adoration, yeah. your, your worship, right? So um, I, to maybe start poking the bear yes. of what are these idols Let's we've got. It. Uh, one of the things I've noticed is when you walk into the home of families, it's very easy to tell the culture of the family by the arrangement of the furniture in the home. Yeah. So one of my favorite things to do when I walk into a space is kind of how have they set up their house to sort of tell you what's important in the home, right? And so um, one of the ones that uh, I, I, I always look for because you know I'm kind of a film guy is I look for how is the TV arranged – and how is the furniture arranged in relationship to the television? And what you notice is when I was a kid, there was a time when the TV was in the corner and all the couches were turned to face one another. And so the idea was when you sat in a room, the immediate way you directed your attention was towards another place where someone would theoretically be sitting. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the same reason why the dinner table is arranged in such a way that everyone faces inward. Um, mainly because the food is in the center and you got to grab it. But right. first things first. <clears throat> oriented thankfully, the food. there's also yeah. another person there. Right? Uh, now, in, in my home included, I'll, I'll put myself in this category, most living rooms are arranged so that the all seats are facing a television. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's an important thing for us to realize. We have arranged the most sacred spaces of our lives to be directed towards a large uh, etched black box from which light emits to give us stories that make us happy. So uh, when we talked about last week or in our last podcast, the idea of happiness sort of being this and entertainment and being enthused, sort of this uh, thing that we think will give our lives value and something we can worship. I think the TV becomes the idol in many ways of that uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that's good. Uh, you know, the um, we've talked about our propensity to make ourselves an idol uh, in doing in in talking like that, we're really sort of recognizing that the form an idol takes varies. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in the New Testament, it says greed is an idol. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if if we're going to identify the things that are idols, we're going to have to sort of expand the scope of what constitutes idolatry. And um, so, if greed is an idol, then um, at one level. Um, Anything for which you compromise your primary obligation to God um, becomes an idol. And anything for which you give credit, arguably, uh, that is more rightly deserving, deserved by God, becomes an idol. I, I mean, some of the stuff we've talked about in this podcast series, we had a week on, if I recall, scientism. And we talked about, you know, the whole the whole view under first principles, I mean, I don't know if the whole week was on it, but we talked about the fact that there's this infatuation in modern culture with seeing ultimate answers to our our life and our purpose through the lens of the material world. Well, in a, in a way, that's idolatry. If you're, if you're sort of saying, my ultimate answers can be found in the material world rather than God, that's one form of idolatry. And I think in particular in our time in this regard, uh, people are looking for 
answers in technology. And I think it's a graven image in a very real sense um, in that it's made by us. And then we believe that it will transform our lives Mm. in fundamental ways to find meaning and purpose. And in some cases, even eternal life. Mm. Um, And so I think that technology is high on the list of, of idols in our present age. Yeah, I would, um, I would say, you know, thanks for reminding us, by the way, that, that Paul says, uh, Paul says, mentions greed and then says, which is idolatry. Yeah. Um, mm. and <clears throat> it's a weird thing. I, I, so, so here's, here's an interesting thing to say. <laughs> At least I think it's interesting. Um, <laughs> cause I'm about to say it. Um, <laughs> but, but. I think one of the Christian antidotes to idolatry is contentment. Yeah, um, that's interesting. I agree with that. I think contentment is an antidote to um, a lust for more entertainment, Kyle. Hmm. Contentment, right? Yeah. Um, contentment is an antidote to um, a lust for eternal life and technology, a lust for even myself on social media. I think you know, we've got this sort of fable of Narcissus who falls in love with his own reflection in a pond um, and then dies. Yeah, wastes <laughs> away um, staring wastes at his own away reflection. Wastes away staring, at, his, staring yeah. at himself. I mean, I see this happening in the world around us with social media. We've, we don't have shrines in our home with turtles and frogs and bilge rats, you but know. We have profiles. But we have profiles, right? We have yeah. Instagram, we have Facebook where we have fallen in love, I think, not so much with ourselves, but who we can make ourselves to be on social media. And we, we, we put that out there for other people to consume and adore and worship. I, I would even say Pinterest is one of the more sneaky um, realms of, uh, mm. of idol worship because it combines... Um, it combines uh, social media with discontent. <laughs> because mm. on Pinterest, mm. what you end up doing is put building this platform of all the things that you wish you had, and all the all all the surfaces in your home you wish you could upgrade, and you know, um, yeah. and I mean, whatever. And I, I'm sure there are innocuous usages uses of like Pinterest, for instance. I mean, we're not trying to make a demon. There's not a demon inside every hollow frog, right? Right. Um. But there are hollow frogs with demons in it, dadgummit, right? Yeah. Like that's so And and often I think that I often think the demons are not necessarily concerned with where are the quote unquote frogs, but where are which frogs are getting our attention. Right. And they'll go there and capitalize there. I, I think it's interesting that we oftentimes we, we refer to them as profiles now, but the, the, the term for a lot of those things is avatar. Yeah. Your your image, which is the word we used to use for the representative of a deity, mm-hmm. right? So we're mm-hmm. actually creating uh, a, a profile for ourselves that's sort of saying, this is the representation of myself who by implication would be the deity in that yeah. particular scenario. I think this kind of sort of a, a parasitic uh, idol that I think connects to a lot of the social media stuff is sort of the idea of the status symbol. We've always kind of had the status symbol, whether it's the new car, the new shoes, or um, Whatever it is, something that betrays a significance through an object we put on ourselves. Yeah. So, um, it, you know, it just occurred to me in thinking about this whole idea of discontentment that one of the things it says about Satan is that he did not keep to his place. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, he was unsatisfied. Now we're building with, the biblical theology. Let's, let's he go. was unsatisfied with the 
place he had been put in. And so he, he was trying to elevate himself to something that he wasn't intended for. Um, and, you know, I think that's got to be at some level the origin of all discontentment is I, I've been given a place and a role and I don't find enough satisfaction in the role I've been given. That's the word, satisfaction. Yeah. Hmm. It's contentment, but it's satisfaction. We become, I think the idols we worship express are for us the, the image of what we believe will satisfy us. Yeah. They become the thing that we think will satisfy us. And and so we fashion, for instance, the Israelites, when they would run off to these other idols, it's because they saw that these idols promising them something they wanted. They didn't believe that God would provide any longer. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so I think the question for us as Christians is are we satisfied with Jesus? Are we satisfied with his lordship? With his with his husbandship, he is the groom. We are the bride. Are we fully satisfied with him? Or are we chasing other loves, other things we think we need in addition to him? Yeah, Jesus is great, but what I really need is white marble countertops and Jesus. Mm. Yeah, Jesus is awesome, but what I really need is 85,000 followers on Twitter, right? right? In addition to Jesus, like, that would just... Anyway, I, I, I think I think we've, you know, miraculously landed on something that's that's significant. A, a Christian antidote to idolatry in our lives in whatever form it takes is contentment and ultimate satisfaction in God and in what he promises, his promises, his provision. I think this is why specifically Second Corinthians says that we walk by faith and not by sight. Not that our sight is not important, but that sight often betrays our trust. So, for instance, um, whenever you're around a child, or uh, my experience with it is, is, is my dog, uh, River. Uh, whenever I am, whenever we're in an odd situation or she feels unsafe, you see this a lot with kids too, where their eyes go next betrays their trust. Because they're going, I feel unsafe. I don't know what to do here. I don't know what's expected of me. And so their eyes go where they think that answer is going to be. And I think uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 5-7, walk by faith, not by sight, is giving us that principle. They're saying where our eyes go in our moment of need betrays where our God is mm-hmm. or where we think he is, mm-hmm. where we think that satisfaction is going to come from. And so I think a, a good barometer for me in my life has been when I feel stressed, when I feel worried, when I feel spent, right? So it's sort of that when you need that uh, break and you go, man, you know what I need? I need chocolate. The answer, <laughs> yeah. So it could be, cho- it could be chocolate. Um, whatever, whatever you fill that blank with, right, right. That's right. going to let you know probably where that idolatry is right. directed for you. Yeah, and also I think you're getting at the whole question of security. Mm-hmm. Where does your sense of security come from? Mm-hmm. And that is. Um, can you rest in what God has provisioned and made and intended with all the attendant risks? Because there's no lack of risks. I mean, we th- I think we say this thing about contentment and satisfaction. And for, for many of us, you know, I think the picture that conjures up in our head sort of unspoken is kind of lolling around on the couch with not much to do and just sort of satisfied with this lack of of uh, occupation, and and that's not mm. it at all. <laughs> no. uh, that that we have, I think, if we rightly understand our calling, uh, 
um, it's both adventurous and um, risky in the sense, risky in the sense of uh, material and physical consequences potential. So, so the Israelites were often made fun of in their early years because the other cultures would make fun of them for having no God. They thought they were godless because they didn't have some image they were right. bouncing around at the front of, you know, they had the, the Ark of the They'd Covenant. They rejected all their gods, right. so they were atheists. Yeah, and yeah. so they, were, they would say, how, how could you possibly think this would go well for you, coming against us with your armies, heading off into the wilderness when you have no God before you? But I think for them, that was a grand statement of, of risk and trust to say, right. we're going to walk into these battles. We're going to walk into this wilderness knowing that our God goes before us. We don't have to carry him behind us in the train. Um, yeah. Which is, I think is, Kyle, to your point, why God attaches this promise to this command. Mm. A thousand generations will get my mercy of those who love me and keep my commands. Go get after the things I've commanded you to be about and just watch my mercy chase you down. Mm. Right? Um, that's a great promise. Like we have a we have an incredible husband. <laughs> and that, that that sounds kind of gross. I'm a man. I don't like saying that kind of thing. But that's who and God yet. says he is to his church. He is a groom. He's he's our husband. And and in that way, he provides for us everything we need. We can trust him. We can live into that love and live out of that love um, by, by being obedient to what he commands us to do. So in that basis, we don't have to chase down other things. Right. right? Mm, we don't right. have to seek those yeah. um, comforts and satisfactions somewhere else. Yeah. Um, I, I, not, you know, at the, I mean, I, I definitely want to avoid, you know, feminizing our view of this because— like you say, it's kind of weird to say God is a husband to the church for, for men in particular. But I, I really do think that in calling us to Christ, he's calling us to something bold and um, and, and, and non-trivial. I mean, we're, it's one thing to say, well, I'm going to live a life of satisfaction and contentment. It's, but that means because I'm satisfied with God's plan, uh, I'm going to be a truth teller. Yeah in a society that hates the truth, with all that that entails and all that that implies, uh, that I'm going to sort of come to grips with the fact that being true um, and being nice don't necessarily always go together the way we tend to define niceness. There's nothing more compassionate than the truth, but that doesn't mean the people who receive it or hear it are going to love it. You know, And so it really boils down to if we if we have bowed our our heart and our mind to God, um, then the consequences of living that out become uh, not the def- decisive hmm. aspect of our of how we go about choosing our life path. We're gonna you know we're gonna honor Him mm-hmm. above all things, and we're gonna live out the consequences of that and take satisfaction in being what He's made us to be. I I, I just think that. Um, you know, there's no, there's no passivity in contentment. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say. Yeah, Ma- maybe a, a great example of this. You know, we talked about early on that Jesus is the image of God. It's interesting to me that the image of God knew that ultimately His purpose was to come and be broken, so that God may be more visible. 
to those that that are looking for him. So Jesus knew that contentment for him meant going to the cross, even though it would be the weight of all sin upon his shoulders. And I think for us, when we're talking about, you know, not making graven images and being satisfied, part of that means being satisfied in what our role is as image bearers, that to be an image bearer of God means that I may be the vessel that is crushed so that the God that I am imaging may be more clearly seen. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that satisfaction is going to require a lot of us. Um, But we know from our Savior, who is the image of God, that that road is worth taking. Well, and so I'll offer this up. I'm going to take those comments as you guys' um, closing comments. I think they're worthy of that anyway. But I'm going to to offer this um, as we wrap this, this conversation up. And as I think it'll tie in to what both of you have just said, I think that living in a fallen pagan world, a Christian's satisfaction in God should be evident to the world around him. Um, it, it, it should be obvious. In other words, there should be a distinct difference between the way that a Christian, the things that a Christian loves and chases and spends his time pursuing um, and cultivates in himself and in his kids and in his grandkids, uh, there should be a distinct difference between a Christian and the rest of the world because because we have been finally, ultimately satisfied in Jesus Christ. And and so to, to both of your point, that's going to involve radical truth-telling. That's, that's going to involve living out that satisfaction in peculiar ways. Um, but... All of that is 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 done trusting um, that we serve a God whose mercy stays with us through a thousand generations. That's the kind of God we love and serve. Um, so don't worship idols, right? And don't make stuff to worship. Yeah. This has been a faith and culture conversation a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can join the conversation by emailing us at faithandculture at lakeridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing. <laughs>